0: me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand I shall not be shaken as we read these words Lord God we know this has been the experience of everyone in this room verses seven and eight in some way testify to our life and our faith and our journey with you and following you Lord Jesus and some of us today need even more from this psalm, for we face decisions. Some of us are in the midst of severe trials. Some of us have to choose between what seem like just a multitude of good options in front of them. Some of us have to deal with challenges in their, with their friends and with their families. We pray, Lord God, as this psalm declares that you would give guidance to those of us who need it this morning and give us confidence so that like verse nine is true of us as well. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Fill us with gladness, with joy, with security. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. You are all of our goodness, O Lord God, This is our experience, just like the psalmist, yet we want to see more of your goodness in our life, and as you display it, who needs to see this today among us? You, O Lord, know the answer to that question. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance." May these verses, verses 5 and 6, be our testimony, as they are the testimony of the psalmist. For many of us can look back on our lives, and we see that this is exactly who you are and how you work in our lives. And many of us look ahead, and we look with hope to see this and these verses fulfilled. And we pray that you would make that true as well. Meet the needs of your people according to your word as we have prayed it, and bless your word now to us as we study it together. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at the innocent one again who is now vindicated. You know, all of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record the actual burial of Jesus' body. Have you ever wondered why? I mean, we tend to talk very quickly, you know, through the the cross and the centrality of it to our faith and, and go to the resurrection of Jesus, but every single one of the gospel writers makes a point to describe the burial of Jesus' body. So what's the significance of that to us as a Christian? Now, we've probably all been at a burial. I think there are five aspects to the burial of Christ that are significant to us as Christians to look at. And I think the first one is perhaps the simplest and in many ways very profound because it makes us pause and show our own respect, respect for Jesus' body. I mean, he came in the flesh. He came as one of us. Second of all, it testifies to his real death. Jesus really died. And if it testifies to his real death, the realness of it, it further emphasizes the realness of the resurrection that we're going to be looking at very briefly, very shortly, in our passage this morning. Third aspect is that it emphasizes the reality of our sin. For the gospel writers to now go and talk about his burial. Because our Sin necessitated his death. Fourth, it symbolizes also for us our death to sin. You know, often in our baptismal formulas, we say things like, as as Jesus was buried, so we're buried to sin. Death to sin by faith in him. And there are many ways we can talk about that. Death to sin in him because we've been justified that he paid the penalty for us. And that by putting our faith in him, we are made right with God. There's also the sense in which, as Romans 6 talks about, that we've died to sin in actuality. That the power of Christ at work in us produces a real righteousness for God. And there's a sense in which there is a death to sin that we are looking forward to, ultimately, when it shall be no more, when we make it to glory. And finally, of course, the burial is recorded because it produces great anticipation in the storyline as the gospel writers recounted to us. We are looking forward to something beyond the grave and that causes us to anticipate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the final day of glory. So these five aspects of Jesus' burial are very important to us as Christians and to take time to think through them and meditate upon them. And as we looked at last Sunday with the cross, Jesus said, it's finished. He also said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And immediately upon death, Jesus was in heaven with his father, just as he told that penitent thief that we looked at. And his body would lay in the ground until the third day and his day of resurrection. And, of course, then his subsequent ascension back to glory 40 days later. So the event of Jesus' cross and resurrection is central to our faith. It's the most important thing about being a Christian. It's historical reality that these things did take place. Their redemptive efficacy in that it wasn't just history. It wasn't just something that happened, but it had atonement value. For those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. Please turn your Bibles to Luke 23 starting in verse 50. And I'll read through 24.12 or you can follow along as I printed it for you in your bulletin. And we'll rejoice in the innocent one who is vindicated. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come, home, come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So the tragedy of the cross turns into this surprising and glorious outcome of Jesus' resurrection. And Luke presents it to us so that we marvel at Jesus' resurrection and we believe in him as the Lord and as the Christ, as our God. And our Savior. The innocent one in our passage that we've been studying here was honored in his burial. And the innocent one was vindicated in his resurrection. And so along with Joseph, we pay our respects as we read and consider verses 50 to 56. And then we wonder in awe as the women do in verses 1 through 12 at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The innocent one is a theme that we've been pointing out in the Gospel of Luke. It's quite in your face as he tells the story of Jesus' trial and his condemnation, his crucifixion, as it's all told about by Luke. We looked at the innocent one on trial, starting back in chapter 22, verse 66, and the innocent one who was then condemned, and the innocent one then who was crucified, and now the innocent one who will be vindicated in our passage today. And as I have explained to us many times over, each gospel author has their own emphases that they want to bring out as they tell the story of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And there are a lot of parallels to look at. And so I printed them for you in your bulletin, something that you could do on your own if you're interested in looking at how the other gospel writers record the burial of Jesus and how they record his resurrection. And when it comes to the resurrection, there's obviously a lot of chaos actually happening on that day Well, it's almost like it's mimicked in the scriptures because the gospel writers tell so many different aspects of the story that there are at least three different ways you can harmonize all the accounts. It gets very complicated puzzle, but it's much more important to come to grips with the actual account of each writer himself. And so we'll be focusing our attention on Luke this morning and integrate things as they're helpful in the storyline. But first, let's pay our respects as Joseph buries Jesus' body. And we're introduced to a man, Joseph of Arimathea. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. A good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. A very interesting man in the storyline of Jesus' Death and resurrection, he was a member of the council. That means the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders who ruled. He was either from that Judean town, Arimathea, or born there, about 20 or 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But we find from all the other gospel writers that he was highly respected by the council. He was also, as Matthew and John record, a believer in Jesus. He was one of the disciples in a a disciple of Jesus. He was a wealthy man as well. We learn a lot about him. But Luke chooses to emphasize one aspect of his character for us, and that is his piety, his righteousness. Notice he was a good and righteous man. The rest of the council do not get that qualification. They were not good and righteous men. And he didn't consent to their decision. Speaking about his decision to condemn Jesus, he didn't consent to that. He didn't consent to hand him over to Pilate for crucifixion. And likely he didn't agree all along with all of their plotting and their scheming to catch Jesus and their hiring of Judas to betray him. He didn't consent to these things. Notice also how Luke describes him as one who's looking for the kingdom of God. That should trigger something in our memory from the gospel according to Luke. Because it's a way of talking about somebody's faith and talking about how they're a true believer. And it reminds us of the opening of Luke's gospel. If you turn back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Because it refers to two people that we were introduced to at the beginning of the book. Simeon and Anna. In the birth narrative of Jesus. So he's coming into the world from eternal glory. His incarnation. And we read about these two people their character, and what they're looking for. And then we read about this man, Joseph, at the very end, after Jesus' death, uh, after his ministry in this world. Similar phrases are brought to mind. And as we read Luke, we're supposed to be recalling this. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem, starting in verse 25 of chapter 2, whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Even the way Luke closes his gospel and describes Joseph of Arimathea, a a character who's not the main character in the story, it reminds us of the very beginning and how his life began on earth and what this gospel account of Luke has been all about from the very beginning. We've finally gotten to what we've been waiting for. Well, then Joseph buries Jesus' body. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. I mean, normally the Romans would just let the bodies rot on the crosses for days. And then just take them all down and throw them in a common grave. Now in special situations, they might have given family and friends permission to take down the body of the crucified and bury their own dead, but not in Jesus' case, because remember his crime, so to speak, was high treason. It's a joke, but that's why he was crucified. But in Jesus' situation, there's even further circumstances that Pilate's concerned about because he's going to have to acquiesce to the Jewish sensibilities, of the, you know, like burying people on the same day, especially in light of the Passover Sabbath that's going to be beginning at 6 p.m. that day. So there are other reasons that Pilate then would do what he did that day, like hastening the death, which wasn't often done, of those being crucified by having their legs broken, because then they would suffocate more quickly. But of course, Jesus, as he investigates, surprisingly is already dead, and so they don't break his legs, but instead pierce his side. And Joseph acts more openly in faith here than he has before. Sort of been a secret disciple, if you will, but he courageously asks Pilate for the body of Jesus, and wants to provide dignity for Jesus' death and honor him as he deserves. We don't know what motivates Pilate to consent. I mean, certainly God is involved. How he does it, we don't know. But maybe he considers Joseph a trustworthy person, even holds respect for him himself, perhaps. And remember, Pilate all along did not believe that Jesus deserved to die. Well, Joseph and another believer, Nicodemus, both on the council... We read in the Gospel of John, work together to give Jesus a proper burial, a royal burial, actually. Joseph collects the body, washes it, buys some burial clothes for him, and they would have had to do this very hastily. They only had three hours to get it all done and wrapped it very tightly in linen shroud. Uh, Both of them and maybe their servants anointed the body, and we learn from John's account that they used 75 to 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes a kingly amount of spices to slow the decay, to mitigate the stench. That's why that was done. And they laid Jesus in Joseph's own tomb, we find. His own rock-hewn tomb in a nearby garden. Likely, it was used to be a part of a quarry. But it was a new tomb, unused. And a wealthy tomb, because it had a front chamber. Most of the tombs were reused at the time and would put many bodies in them all at once. And eventually they throw out the bones and they would make room for more. But all of this fulfills prophecy for Jesus. Isaiah 53, 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then a three-foot diameter sort of a disc-shaped stone that gets cut out of stone, is put on a groove in an incline and rolled in front of the tomb. There's a two-foot opening, but this seals it off from animals, from robbers. Pretty easy to seal as it goes down on its own, but very difficult to reopen. And Matthew's account records for us, too, that the Romans also appointed a guard, posted a guard at this time, and the priests and Pharisees were involved in it, So in Matthew 27, 62, we read, Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So of course, all of this only serves to provide stronger evidence for the actual resurrection. Although, they will say that the body was stolen and the council will pay off the soldiers. Well, the women observed all this in verses 54 to 56. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. Again, this was all done very quickly in the afternoon from the death of Jesus to sundown. It had to be done quickly to keep observance of the Sabbath. And a number of women were involved here. We are, see included Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, also likely Joanna and even others, as we'll read when we get down to verse 10. But these women desire to show their own love and honor for Jesus as well in his death. And so they returned to make their own preparations that night before the Sabbath for further anointing in the following morning. Luke makes a point to note again the piety of the women. Luke does this often throughout his account of many stories, but they keep the Sabbath. Just like Joseph was a good and righteous man looking for the kingdom. These are the witnesses that Luke brings forward to Jesus' death and resurrection. And his implied question to us who read the gospel and hear it proclaimed is, will you believe them? Look at their character and who they are. These are witnesses that you can trust. And so, along with Joseph, as he buries the body, we pay our respects as well. You know, we've all been to funerals. That's what we do. And so I think it's a good point to pause and just briefly reflect on what we've been learning in the Gospel of Luke at this point. I mean, there's no way to go through it all, of course. That's a great project for you to go back, but we remember so much that we've learned so far from Jesus' life through the Gospel of Luke, the preparation for his incarnation. If you remember at the very beginning. You can even flip through your Gospel of Luke right now and look at the headings that your editors put in there for you. So we learn about the preparations for the Incarnation, all the glorious events that attended his birth. Luke told us about the preparations of John the Baptist and Jesus' fast in the desert and his battling of Satan. Luke then told us about the opening of Jesus' ministry and his preaching and his teaching and his healing ministry in Galilee, about his many parables of wisdom that he told, the deeds of power and mercy that he performed, and the actions of righteousness that he took how he trained his apostles and many others who then eventually would write for us the scriptures that then we would read as disciples of Jesus. We read in the Gospel of Luke too the authority that Jesus had as the Son of God and how many people disrespected him for it. And of course, most recently, we've read in the Gospel of Luke about his Passion Week and soon we will finish up the Gospel account over the next two weeks. We've seen so much. And we've learned so much in the Gospel of Luke about what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. And, we think, and we've learned about eternal salvation and how it is that we come to be saved. It's the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. Well, now we turn to the resurrection and wonder and awe as the women do over this empty tomb. And so we read about the missing body in verses 1 to 3. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn they went to the tomb taking the spices they'd prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So the women get up while it's very dark and early and barely enough light to see the way to the tomb, Sunday morning, and not so incidentally, I mean this is why the church historically has a tradition of worshiping on a Sunday, to honor our Lord Jesus who died and rose on our behalf, and why we refer to it as the Lord's Day. Well, they expected Jesus' body to be in the tomb, of course. Yet, it's not clear whether they knew about the sealing of the tomb and the guards. Anyway, they took their spices, everything that they prepared to display their own act of love toward Jesus, which was often done up until the third day. And We can sort of think of this as similar to what we do when we place flowers on a grave. Days following funerals sometimes. Now, the text says poetically for us, They found the stone, but they didn't find the body. Catch that? They found the stone. It was rolled away. But they didn't find the body of our Lord Jesus. And Luke emphasizes very clearly that it's our Lord Jesus who is raised from the dead. I mean, it's good that the stone was moved because they were probably wondering about this problem. And Luke wants us to ponder this empty tomb for a moment with the women. I mean, what happened, do you think? Do you know what happened in the story? Only Matthew actually records what happened at that time. In Matthew 28, it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. And then we get to the angelic message in verses four to seven to these women. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise? The women, of course, are perplexed. These two men are angels. They appear in dazzling white. The women are frightened, of course, and bow down to the ground out of reverence for these heavenly messengers. And Matthew and Mark record for us angels as well involved in the scene, and there are many ways to integrate these storylines. Their message first contains a mild rebuke, like why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, those famous words. He's not here, but he is risen. They should have more faith in the words of Jesus and take action and believe in him. Jesus had taught about his resurrection. He repeatedly these to his disciples from the very beginning in Galilee. Back in Luke chapter 9, he said that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Divinely, a divine must, he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. In other words, he must be killed and on the third day be raised. He must be raised. The Son of Man would be delivered into the hands of evil men. The innocent one would be crucified and raised on the third day. The fulfillment of the Jesus cross and resurrection, they all go together in our preaching, in our speaking, and our proclaiming to people about redemption. This is the core of the gospel message itself. Jesus crucified, buried, and risen. And then they give a report to the apostles in verses 8 through 12. They remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So the women now remember all those teachings that the angel said, Do you not remember? And they believe, and they're overwhelmed with awe and fear and joy. And so they go to the apostles and speak to Peter and the rest of the eleven and others and make the report, and and Matthew and Mark let us know that the angels even instructed them to do this. Well, Luke now at the end of the story identifies the women for us, and perhaps this is a good time to tell you about some of the different integration options in your, your gospel accounts. Mary Magdalene. We don't know if she left early and made a report and then returns a second time. Because in Jesus' appearance to her in John chapter 20 at the tomb, we wonder, is that the same or different than the appearance to the rest of the women that took place? And when we speak about Jesus' appearance, did he appear to the other women in Matthew 28 on the way to the apostles or on the way back? And Peter and John, did they take off? before hearing the full story of the report of the resurrection appearances or any but Mary Magdalene's maybe before the appearance. So, as you can see, the chaos of the day is reflected in all these different accounts and there are three different ways primarily to integrate them all. It's a puzzle you can work on on your own. But the apostles at first in the Gospel of Luke thought this was nonsense. Missing body, even an appearance of Jesus maybe. But Peter and John go to check it out and it's recorded for us in John's Gospel starting in verse 20. You can turn your Bibles there. John 20, beginning in verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John. So Peter went out with John and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying up there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place all by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. course, it takes a while for this to sink in. And Luke, did you notice how Luke tells the story very differently than Matthew, Mark, and and, um, John, is that he purposefully doesn't say anything about any appearances of Jesus yet. He saves that. He saves it for the story of the road to Emmaus. But when you look at this storyline, there might be some of you here today that think, Maybe this is nonsense. but will you check it out like Peter and listen to the rest of the gospel of Luke in chapter 24? I mean, we wonder in awe, just like the ladies did in the story over the empty tomb. They go to see the tomb of the body, but end up testifying to the resurrection of the Lord. So don't be reluctant to believe. I mean, you're going to encounter a lot of contemporary unbelieving explanations for the empty tomb. But after all the analysis, the best historical explanation still is that he was raised from the dead. And it's more than that. It's not just true. It's that it has power to forgive us of our sins and bring us into the very presence of God for eternity. So remember Jesus' words and act on them with faith. Faith. Luke saves the whole drama of all the appearances until the Emmaus Road episode, but right now we're supposed to marvel at the resurrection and believe for Him for who He is. He is the Lord and Christ. He is our God and He is our Savior. And when we think about the whole idea of a resurrection, we talk so much about it in the Christian circles that it's almost like something, we forget how radical it is. I mean... It's, it's a wild thing to think that Jesus was raised from the dead, especially after a death he died. It's not like it was an easy death to come back from if there are such things, right? It was incredible. It's mind-boggling. I mean, we've all been to funerals and seen corpses. A resurrection? And at the same time, we can have an increased faith in Jesus as we read this. He's the one who was raised from the dead. But by his resurrection, we know three aspects of our faith that are proclaimed by his resurrection. Just as we looked at a few things at the beginning of why the burial is significant for us as Christians, there are at least three reasons, very strong ones, that the resurrection points to for our faith. The first, of course, is that his resurrection testifies to the fact that he is who he said he was. That this is the eternal Son of God... And the divine Messiah. And all that those terms mean from the Bible. So he is who he said he he was. Second of all, it shows that his sacrifice was accepted as payment for our sin by God our Father. For the sins of his people. We're redeemed. This is in a sense the Father's testimony to the work of Jesus that it is accepted and you are completely forgiven if you put your faith in him. Third, it testifies to power. I mean, if Jesus was powerful enough to take up his life again, as he said, I will have the authority to lay down my life, and I will take it up again, he has the authority to grant salvation, eternal life to people. He has the power then to raise our bodies from the dead. On the final day as well. We will be raised. Without the cross and resurrection, Christianity would just be another human religion with human effort at the center of it and how you get to God. But Christianity is not that. It's not a human-made religion trying to reach out to God and perhaps find him. But it's God reaching toward us. If Christ has not been raised, the apostle Paul says, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He had to be raised from the dead. There's one final passage I really want you to turn to in your Bibles. It's in Acts chapter 2, or you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. But starting in verse 22, this is Peter's sermon, part of it, that he would preach at Pentecost. And he recounts the whole story of what took place that we've been reading about in Luke. He applies and shows us two psalms that it fulfills from the Old Testament, and puts before us the centrality of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because without this, Christianity is worthless and useless. It is not about us trying to make ourselves better or trying to forget how bad we are. But it's about Jesus Christ dying in our place for our sins. So we read in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, Peter's words as he preaches, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and this is from Psalm 16, the psalm that we use this morning in our worship. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit up my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter's sermon could not be any clearer about the role of Jesus in his death and resurrection. God, in Christ, did it all. We repent and believe and receive salvation. Is that you? You? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? So much of the New Testament is filled with extending this hope of resurrection to us for eternal life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We've been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment, of greater things yet to come, the resurrection of our bodies in glory. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we adore you this morning as the one crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. We love recounting the gospel story, for it is our life, it's what we hope in, it's what defines us as people, as your people. And Lord Jesus, if we look at your resurrection and what all it means in the And the complete forgiveness of our sins, also the promise that it gives us that one day our bodies will be raised like yours, in glory, never to die again. And we will be free from sin, perfected in soul and in body. And it's to this end that we hope this morning, and we give you praise and glory, Jesus, our Lord and our Christ. Amen.